Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Frank Costigliola, author of the new book, Kenan, A Life Between Worlds. Uh, Frank, welcome to Bookstack. Well, thank you very much, Richard. I'm very glad to be here. And congratulations uh, on the book. So, so why this new biography of the Cold War strategist, George Kennan? Well, partly because I think Kennan is more than a Cold War strategist. I mean, George Kennan is, is most famous as the author of the Doctrine of Containment, containing the Soviet Union after, after World War II. And, and he wrote this long telegram, the longest telegram ever sent to the State Department from Moscow in February 1946. And then he published Foreign Affairs, at first an anonymous article, hence it's known as the Mr. X article, in which he also, in both documents, he called for containing the Soviet Union rather than either going to war with them or uh, appeasing them by allowing the Soviet Union to expand further beyond where its forces were in 1945. But Kennedy is much more than that. He was also a public intellectual who lived to be 101 years old. He was a critic of the industrial system, of, of the reliance on machines. He was an early environmentalist. Uh, he was one of the first persons in the general uh, population to pick up on the, on the dangers of climate change. Uh, he's a person, he's an intellectual in the sense, he's a person who thought otherwise. And he brings to the 20th century and early 21st centuries a perspective that's different and hence often perceptive, sometimes blinded, sometimes blinded. He had his prejudices, but also a person who often has a, a interesting and, and sometimes valuable perspective on our current world. Yeah, it's that it's that breadth of thinking that that really comes across in the book, actually, and the the independence as well. But uh, I mean, as you hinted at there, in some ways, almost his greatest tragedy stems from his greatest success: the the long telegram, the X article, right after the the Second World War, really completely define for so many of us what we think of uh, when we say George Kennan. Well, that's true because I think you know this happens often. That a person who becomes associated with a, a doctrine or associated with an idea is a person who put together in a persuasive, attractive, cogent way ideas that are in the air. And hence, you know, the, the person's uh, statement resonated. And, and that happened with Kennan, with containment. I think, I dare say that if Kennan had never been born, the United States would have pursued a policy very similar to what it did pursue after World War II. Perhaps it would not have been named containment. But it would have been essentially the same policy. So Kennan was a superbly persuasive, incredibly persuasive writer. And so in those two documents, the long telegram and the Mr. X article, he presented an argument for containment. The argument became associated with his name and maybe even its alliteration, containment. Kennan, I don't know. So that's the image and the, the context that people held with regard to Kennan, although he himself came to be unhappy about that because he thought, he did not, did not like the way containment was pursued by the U.S. government, particularly after the 1940s, after the late 40s. Yeah, but uh, that, that strikes me as one of the really interesting things. As you say, you know, containment maybe would have emerged as in a similar kind of way and policy might have been uh, similar. But the actual policy that comes out of containment is a much more militarized version of his original uh, concept. And that really pained him, didn't it? That's true. But I think Kennan... Actually, he had a television interview in 1996 with David Gergen, in which he finally acknowledged that he was in part responsible for the militarization of the containment policy. But for many, many years, decades before that, 
he denied that. He said he was misinterpreted. But I believe that, as I said before, the Long Telegram and the Mr. X article are highly persuasive uh, statements, manifestos. And one reason they're so powerful rhetorically is that Kennan used emotionally evocative language in the name of cool realism. It's kind of a squaring the circle. Emotionally evocative language in the name of cool calculated realism. And so the, the documents, those manifestos appealed on a rational as well as an emotional basis. And in a sense, Kennan oversold the argument. He presented the Soviet Union in those two documents as an existential threat to the United States rather than a political challenge to the United States. And hence, especially after the United States had just fought and won a global war with a magnificent military machine, many Americans believed that the proper response to the Soviet challenge, this existential threat, according to Kennan in those two documents, was to build up American military forces. And then this led to a kind of, had a momentum of its own, kind of a vicious cycle of the Soviets responding with their military buildup and the atomic arms race, so forth and so on, the weapons, missiles, and so forth. Um, so things got, in a way, out of hand. But in a way, as I said, the Kennan kind of set the stage for that by selling the doctrine of containment so incredibly persuasively that people saw the threat as existential rather than merely a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that interview in the 90s, by which stage, of course, the Soviet Union had collapsed. And I mean, he, he did become uh, somebody who was lauded in that period. And the, the general consensus seemed to have been that it was a mixture of Kennan's containment uh, and Reagan's we win, they lose policy that had really led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And those two things really were integrated together. Well, Kennan would have responded to your statement, which is accurate, but he would have responded that actually, you know, it's unfortunate that the Cold War lasted as long as it did. Kennan was arguing as early as, privately, as early as February 1948, but publicly as early as the 1950s and thereafter, that there are opportunities. There are opportunities for compromise, diplomacy, negotiation of the Soviet Union, and that the United States should pursue those opportunities and to diffuse tensions, diffuse the dangers of a nuclear war. Kennan regarded the Cold War not as a long peace, but rather as a dangerous uh, confrontation that should be mitigated, if at all possible. And I would also say, and I think Ken would have said as well, that, you know, we, we tend to conflate the early Reagan administration, let's say 1981 to 1983, 83 is when he coined the term uh, evil empire, which he only used once, by the way. And then Reagan of the late 1980s, when Reagan really shifted in many ways and shifted his attitude and policies toward the Soviet Union. In other words, what I'm saying here is that after 1985, from 85 to 89, Reagan made it possible, made it possible for Gorbachev to sell a policy of de-escalation of the Cold War, of disarmament, arms control, and so forth. Reagan made it possible for Gorbachev to sell those policies to Soviet leadership because the United States itself was much less militant and eager to pursue arms control and so forth. So, you know, it's not the case that Reagan said, oh, uh, Soviet Union's an evil empire, and therefore it then collapsed. That's that's really ahistorical. It's, it's interesting as well, I guess, that that um, fear of nuclear war that uh, you mentioned there with Kennan is something that he shared with Reagan, particularly in the, in the second term. And as you argue, I mean, really, it was from the 1950s onwards that Kennan is consistently urging that the United States has to deal with Moscow 
precisely for this reason. He has a deep, deep fear about the absolute likelihood of nuclear war. That's right. He thought it was likely, like, as you put it, he thought it was likely rather than not. And uh, I, I, two things I would say. One is that one of the origins for Kennan's, not pacifism, not pacifism, but aversion to most wars came to him in 1948 when he went to Hamburg. Hamburg, Germany had been probably his favorite city uh, in the interwar period. He'd lived there for a while. He just felt there was a special atmosphere, a music, as he put it, to the city. And so the utter destruction of Hamburg as a result of the firebombing, the Allies firebombing during World War II. And Cannon then, that moved him so much that he decided that really almost nothing justified another major war. Um, so that's, you know, that, I think that, that was an important influence. And he has this friendship with Oppenheimer as well. That's right. Both of them, both of them in a way were responsible for the situation of the militarized Cold War. You know, and, and they were close friends. Kennedy was at the Institute for Advanced Study, where Oppenheimer was the director. And I think they're both deeply, deeply emotional, deeply, uh, both of them were very interested in kind of humanistic uh, endeavors. And, uh, and they, they really bonded uh, on, on, on various uh, different levels. I mean, as you, as you say, Kennan was uh, somewhat contained by his own containment document, uh, or at least his reputation. But he was also contained by his own personality, which, uh, as you show time and again uh, in the book and, and, and have done here, too, uh, really could be quite spiky and cantankerous. That's that's very true. That's very true. I mean, he could be very charming. He could be very courteous. You know, people who worked for him said he was always gracious. But uh, he, yeah, he could be spiky. Uh, Ken, it was also part of this was he was, frankly, uh, an elitist in many ways. And uh, did not suffer fools gladly, did not suffer democracy gladly. He thought that foreign policy should be made by the State Department, uh, particularly by him, if, if at all possible. And the Congress had very little role to play. The American public really didn't understand the issues he felt. And that, uh, so he's not very tolerant for the de demands on the Secretary of State, let's say, to try to get things through Congress and try to be a figure for the public as well as for reporting to the president. I mean, there's one element that uh, you do try to put to bed when it comes to Kennan's reputation, that there is, there is this view that he was always very good as a, as a public official, that uh, he was good when he was in Moscow, when he wrote the long telegram. Uh, he was good when he kind of came back to work on the policy planning staff. But, and that this uh, somehow, in the words of uh, one of his colleagues, uh, kind of put a sensible framework on his work. But then once he moved out of uh, the State Department, he kind of, the older Kennan goes off the rails of somewhat. Uh, but you say that your book really is an attempt to liberate Kennan from that particular narrative. I think how we evaluate Kennan's career depends on how we, the readers and people, um, what our view of the Cold War is. Kennan, as I said, thought the Cold War went on far too long. He regarded containment, he regarded containment as an if-then proposition. If the Soviets were contained, then the United States should move on toward negotiation, compromise, diplomacy to ease tension. Whereas most American leaders, I'd say nearly all American leaders, Secretary of State Dean Acheson, Secretary of State John Forster Dulles, and on and on, uh, came to see the Cold War as, well, not ideal, but overall a pretty good situation because it, it led to stability on a global level. It uh, enabled the United States to remain or to be the leader of the free world, which kept you know, could be, would be fractious allies. They 
Germany, Japan, Britain, and France in line. Uh, the Cold War brought clarity, brought clarity. There was a dependable enemy. That's, that's one thing Gorbachev did. Gorbachev told the other Soviet leaders, we will no longer be the dependable enemy for the Americans. In other words, the whipping boy that used to justify American uh, militaristic policies or, or uh, arms race or whatever. So Kennan saw the Cold War as lasting as long as it did, as dangerous and, and not necessary. Now, if we, if we have a view, we, you and I, if whoever reads the book or considers the issues, has a view of the Cold War <clears throat> as overall a, a benign situation, as a long peace, as a, as a period of stability, then Kennan is the oddball. But if you regard the Cold War as a, as a dangerous period, then Kennan is, is prescient. And let me just say one final thing here. And that's Dean Acheson, who was a was member of his entitled President at the Creation. He was Secretary of State under uh, Harry Truman, and he did much to give birth to the NATO alliance and, and other American policies. Uh, Acheson, at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where he had been an advisor to the Kennedy administration, Acheson said that the United States and the world survived the Cuban Missile Crisis without a nuclear holocaust through, as he put it, quote, dumb luck. And there's a recent book by Marty Sherwin called Gambling with Armageddon, which traces all the aspects of luck, chance, fortunate circumstance in that crisis and in other nuclear crises. So, you know, it depends on your view, whether how you see Kennan as, as pointing to a real danger or someone who is just uh, crying wolf. And, in, you know, in some ways we see those kind of battle of ideas being played out in the book, uh, I suppose, most famously when Kennan is, as we mentioned before, director of the post-war policy planning staff. And, and he comes up against uh, another character, Paul Nitzer, who's a very different kind of thinker, very accomplished political and bureaucratic uh, operator. But they're, they're very different, not just in terms of substance, but also in terms of style, too. That's very true. That's very true. And, and Nitsa is the actually successor of Kennan. He's, he's the director of policy planning staff after Kennan resigns in 1949. Nitsa was a professional Cold Warrior. He, he saw the Cold War as, as a struggle that had to be waged. He saw the differences. He basically accepted Kennan's uh, dire view of the Soviet Union. Kennan expressed it in a long telegram in Mr. X article. Nitsa saw that, took that literally. And, uh, Adhered to those views as head of the policy planning staff in the early 1950s, and then he was an arms control negotiator for Reagan. But what's interesting here with regard to Nitsa is at the very end of his life, and he died, I think, at 97, at the very end of his life, he said that, well, you know, maybe my stance on nuclear weapons was too extreme. Maybe they are more dangerous than I thought. But of course, now he had no power anymore. Deathbed conversion. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, it's elder wisdom, but a little too late. I mean, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, policymaking and uh, the State Department and so on, but th this is a full biography of Kennan that uh, looks at his character and his life as well as his uh, ideas and his career. And, uh, you know, there is this uh, sense throughout the book that tragedy uh, was part of his character in the way that he sees the world but also in the way that he lives his life, and with good reason too, because you know personal tragedy had been something with, that had been with him right from the moment of his uh, birth. His mother dies shortly afterwards. He has a very unstable uh, childhood. How does that? Uh, how does that childhood and that tragic childhood feed into Ken and the Man? Well, he, as you said, his mother died two months after 
he was born. And for a long time, he thought erroneously, he thought she had died as a result of complications from childbirth. Hence, he felt he was responsible for her death. That was not the case. She died from appendicitis, untreated appendicitis. But as you said, the family life after, you know, when growing up was, was not good. There was a fierce conflict between his father and his stepmother on the one hand and his maternal relatives on the other hand. And the book goes into that in great detail. Kevin, I guess the, I guess the answer to your question is, Kevin believed that this kind of foundational trauma was key to understanding him. And, and he, he had a kind of a compulsion to tell the story of that tr tragic start to his life to, to almost not everyone he met, but the people, anyone with whom he grew close to. He stressed that that in an interview with uh, his, his daughter, when his daughter interviewed, interviewed him for a project when John Gaddis, his authorized biographer, interviewed him. He begins his memoir by relating uh, the tragedy of his mother's death. So for him, this was the foundational part or story of, of his life that, that made his life difficult. And he felt that he, he grew up, as he put it, in, when he was at Princeton as a student, he said, well, you know, the, the, the tree was bent and it, it was warped. It, it grew in a kind of unnatural direction because, because he had lost his mother at an early age. And he was forever thereafter longing for some kind of enveloping warmth, some kind of immersion. I mean, this, his love for the Russian people, Russian culture ties in with that. His kind of wanting to, in a way, lose himself in some respects to in some larger, enveloping, maternal, warm, back to the womb in, in a sense that I think it stuck with him all, all his life. And it does, it does contribute to that curious mix of the insider and the outsider that he becomes, that he had inherited wealth. As you say, he attended Princeton. Uh, he was fast-tracked at the State Department, uh, where he had you know, powerful protectors like um, Forrestal, for example. Uh, on the other hand, in all of these places, you never lose that sense that he's an outsider, that he sees himself as an outsider, just as he'd been as a child, living with those aunts and uncles, being sent to a strict military school. It's, a, it's, an, it's a, an odd combination, isn't it, of insecurity and, and real kind of confidence bordering on, on arrogance. That's true. That's very true. And I think, you know, I think there's a, t there's a pattern where people, I'm not a psychologist in any way, but I think there's a pattern by which people uh, reenact traumatic events or, or patterns from their childhood. Kenan, as you said, was an outsider even when he was an insider. And in a way, he, I think, even though he may complain about that, also felt comfortable with that and made sure that he would remain the outsider even as an insider. And just as one example, when he was at the peak of his influence, and he was, in, let's say, 1947 to 49, when his purview was all of U.S. foreign policy. He was director of the policy planning staff, long-term planning for U.S. foreign policy. And... So he and his wife and his family, children, spent their weekends not in Washington where other people were networking and so forth, but rather at their farm in East Berlin, Pennsylvania, about an hour's to two hours drive away. You know, so he would distance himself from the, the action that was going on in Washington. And that's, you know, I think that's emblematic of Kennan in many ways. I mean, uh, you know, I mentioned those uh, powerful protectors like James Forrestal, Avril Harriman uh, would be another, or that was a complex relationship, as you, as you show. Uh, and, and yet the word that I keep coming back to um, from uh, as I'm reading the book is this sense of independence, that 
He's an independent thinker. He's an imaginative thinker. Uh, he's kind of somebody who doesn't just follow with the kind of the, the received wisdom of the day. That's very true. And I, I would add also in terms of benefactors, William Bullitt. I think that Kennan was, was physically an attractive person. I mean, he was tall, slender, blue eyes, handsome. Um, had many women attracted to him. And I think there, there are many men who, older you know, men, who saw Kennan as you know, kind of like a son, kind of, in a sense. And uh, who, people who took him under their wing, Bullitt, as you mentioned, Harriman, Forrestal. But Kennan, in each of those cases, kind of moved beyond the benefactors and benefited from their help, but then also continued to strike, continue on his own path. So, and then he broke with Bullet. Um, the relationship with Harriman was always a bit fraught. Uh, with Forrestal, well, Forrestal, you know, went off the deep end, deep end himself and committed suicide. So Kennedy went beyond the benefactors uh, in one way or another. And, you know, in a way, Frank, that, that almost seems to me to be one of the most remarkable things of all about Kennan, that, uh, as you outlined at the beginning, containment uh, is, in many ways, the founding document of American policy uh, in the Cold War. And, and yet he manages to do all of this as a middle-ranking official. Uh, he's not somebody who holds high office. That, in some ways, makes it all the more extraordinary, doesn't it? Yes, it is. In fact, I'm thinking about this. There's going to be a, a panel on, on Kennan at the Schaefer Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations conference in June. And I'm thinking about, you know, one of the questions that I pose for the panel is, why Kennan? Why, why the continued interest in Kennan? Why, why do you see, I mean, I, I'm alert to this, why do you see Kennan's name mentioned in the front page of the New York Times? I'd say two, three times a month, one reason or another. I think that the reasons for this we, we could go into. Uh, partly it's because association with the containment doctrine. Partly because I think, in a way, Kennan was a man out of his time, in a sense. He, he was from the early 20th century. He, he often said he would have felt more at home, more comfortable in the 18th century. Uh, he was an intellectual and artist in some ways that says, you know, person who saw things otherwise. And that being out of his time, having his kind of different perspective than most other people who were in his time gives him, I think, a kind of longevity in terms of his relevance to uh, the times after, after he died in 2005. But of course, he's also relevant because now we have renewed tension with Russia this, or, and with China. There's questions about what our policy should be. And, and two other things here. One is that Kennan, we should note here, Kennan in the Mr. X article from 1947, predicted the eventual, eventual moderation or collapse of the Soviet Union. That's one thing. And when that happened in 1991, that you know, added to the luster associated with his name. The second thing, and this is important, is that after 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Kennedy was very vocal publicly in the New York Times and elsewhere, also in conversations with uh, his friends in the Clinton administration, vocally against the expansion of NATO eastward into Eastern Europe. And, and now that, that you know, we have the situation that we do have with NATO having expanded it to former Soviet domains, the war in Ukraine and so forth, Kennan has you know, continued relevance because of his stance on, on these various issues. Well, and, and that comes back to the same point, doesn't it, in some ways, because that's another example 
uh, of him being an original thinker, somebody who's not swayed by the kind of the current vogue in a in a particular direction, as you say, he was a vocal opponent uh, of NATO enlargement or expansion, whichever uh, phrase you want to uh, use in that debate. And it struck me as well that, I mean, also during that period, you, you have people uh, like Tony Lake, for example, uh, thinking about the, this new post-Cold War world. And what do they come back to? Uh, they, they, he comes up with the idea of dual containment. And not only is that derivative, but it, you know the, uh, the American policy ends up getting smacked in the mouth by the war on terror. So in, in many ways, this reinforces that idea of Kennan, uh, who saw himself as somebody who was going to think in this independent, original, creative fashion. I think also, I think also that, again, if Kennan had never existed, or let's say his mother had lived, and had it just a career as, a, as an ordinary, let's say a lawyer or whatever, U.S. policy in terms of trying to limit limit the expansion of or limit the influence of other powerful countries, that's something that's, I think, kind of in the nature of the beast in terms of, I think, major powers tend to do this. The United States is the world hegemon and sees the rise of other powers or the uh, power of other powerful countries as a kind of a threat. So, you know, there's a name for it. We call it containment and we associate it with Kennedy. Anyway, this is the natural, or, or at least predictable, predictable, that's the best word, predictable policy for the United States, regardless of whatever George Kennan wrote or said. Yeah, and, and, and Kennan is part of that uh, extraordinary generation, a luminary of that extraordinary generation that, that reimagines the post-war world. Uh, I mean, clearly we need it, but, but is that kind of grand strategic thinking possible in today's Washington, do you think? I think, yeah, maybe... Post-World War II is a simpler world. I mean, there's fewer world powers, fewer complicated issues. And think about all the issues we, we have now that are difficult to deal with because they're not particularly political, economic, or military, climate change and disease and so forth. The world is much more complicated and, and some grand uh, overarching strategy is, is harder to, to arrive at. One thing about grand strategy I, I can't resist mentioning, though, is that in 1946, as Kennedy was writing lectures for the, he was giving lectures at the National War College. He mused about the term grand strategy, and then he wrote in his notebook, drop the word grand. Maybe calling a strategy grand strategy, I think, allows the people who think in those terms to uh, be over, overconfident that they're coming up with something brilliant and overconfident that they do have the answers to all the problems that they're addressing. And it, it is something that you kind of refer to time and again in the book, this kind of um, battle that is going on between, I think at one stage you describe it as eros, the kind of the emotions, the kind of the artistic, creative uh, side of life, and then reason, a kind of cool rationality. And uh, time and again, you refer in, in the book to Kenan believed that the, that the relations between states had to be cooled down, that there had to be a, a calm, rational, reasoned view uh, to policy, and that a lot of policy had to be about clamping down on emotion. That's true. I mean, that uh, dichotomy, eros versus civilization, that, that's, that's a language that Kennan picked up from Freud. And Kennan, Kennan regarded Freudian theory as, as settled science. I mean, he had read Freud in Vienna in 1934. Um, no, actually, 1935, 
and and was a lifelong Freudian. And, um, so that's why he, he used that term. It's not mine. It's really Kennan's uh, borrowing from Freud. But yes, you're right. I think partly maybe because Kennan himself was so emotional, he saw one of the main challenges was tamping down excessive emotion in the parts of players in general, the United States, the Soviet Union. In a way, one thing about containment, uh, one way of looking at containment, especially as, a, as Kennan saw it as a policy that, as an if-then policy, if the Soviets are contained, then you move on to, to compromise and negotiation, is that the purpose of containment was to kind of tamp down the Soviets' kind of uh, boisterousness, exuberance, overconfidence, as a result of the tremendous victories of the Red Army in World War II. And hence the sense of the Red, that Russia and the Red Army could do almost anything. Containment was designed to kind of tamp that down and then, and then the idea is that the Soviet Union would be more reasonable as a negotiating partner. And ultimately, uh, you say he has this skewed but discerning critique of, of his own times. And, and I guess that's the reason why he has this habit of staying relevant uh, in our times too. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, it's remarkable in a way. Uh, it's remarkable, the continued relevance, partly because of what he said and partly because the image we have of Kennan, I think, we, we want, I think we, meaning people in general, want to have some kind of mentor, want to have some kind of wise person that we can consult. And Kennan is kind of in that role. So the book is Kennan, A Life Between Worlds. It's written by my guest, Frank Costigliola, and published by Princeton University Press. Uh, but for now, Frank, congratulations again. I mean, it really is a magnificent biography. Uh, thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Oh, thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>